1 verses 18 through 25. These are the words of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take you, Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Father God, let us meditate upon these verses by means of the work of your Holy Spirit now. Open this text to us and our hearts to you. Renew and revive and save. For you're doing a great work, a powerful work, as you send your preachers to declare the good news of this babe born, Jesus, who is now risen, seated at your right hand and ruling the nations. Bring glory to his name now, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in preparing, uh, deciding about preparing this message, this uh, Lord's Day, it was asked of me to consider again, explaining the the purpose and the meaning behind the virgin birth. Um, Why why was Jesus born of a virgin? Is that important? You know, it's actually, uh, it's reported that um, just in our generation, the number of Christians who believe that Jesus is actually born of a virgin has has gone down quite a bit. There's a number of number of Christians, who uh, more and more Christians who don't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. They don't believe in the virgin birth. They don't think it's necessary. It's, it's not. It, it's it's embarrassing. It's just frankly embarrassing to to be out in the public to say things like you believe such things like that. And so, um, it is it really that important to believe anyway? And then it gets dismissed. Um, it's just a um, it's just a, a part of the story that doesn't need to be considered. I'd like to show this morning um, not only why it's Im- that it's important, but why it's important. What's going on here? Why why would God do this? Have this miracle take place? The birth of Jesus was a natural and normal act, but his conception obviously was miraculous and at the same time extremely problematic for the players involved. And and that comes out here in this passage in Matthew. The doctrine of the virgin birth reveals far more than simply God doing a random but marvelous work. I know, I'll, I'll surprise everybody and have this baby born of a virgin. That will make it miraculous and then everybody will believe in Jesus. That, that's not what's going on. And, and so it, it raises some thoughts. Why was it necessary for Jesus to be born of a virgin? Um, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be just for miracles' sake. Um, what, would be, what would be actually the re- reason? When he's born, he is fully man, and he's born of a woman, we are told, and so we need to consider what's going on here. So let's consider the characters here, Joseph and Mary, for just a minute in this account in Matthew. Matthew's account of this story is unique to the other Gospels, focusing particularly on the awkward position that Joseph finds himself in. 
We find here, he's finding out that, that the woman to whom he was betrothed was with child. And Joseph, as a righteous man, intended to divorce Mary quietly um, and avoid bringing criminal charges, which this raises some questions, too. There, a betrothal is much like an engagement that in our day and age, but it's, um, it's a stronger, there were stronger vows, in essence, than, it wasn't just a promise to get married, but there were actually public vows that were taken, public vows taken um, bef- uh, before others, um, that you were, you were pledging sexual fidelity, uh, until the day that you got married. Um, usually the, the, the woman then was residing in, with her parents until that time. Most likely that's what Mary was doing. And so um, we're also told in, in different sections that, that Joseph and Mary were both righteous. They're declared to be righteous. So, was, so were Elizabeth um, and her husband, the p- parents of John. They were, they were declared to be righteous as, as well. That doesn't mean they were without sin, in, in any way. What it means is that they were like Abraham. They believed the promises of God. They were faithful as Jews looking forward to uh, their, their redemption and the redemption of Israel. They believed the promises of Abraham and it was reckoned to them as righteous. It also meant that they lived in the world um, uh, following the, the laws of God. And, and that's what has to be bothering Joseph so much. Mary is a righteous woman, and she's made vows of chastity. She's made vows of fidelity, and and now he comes to find out that she is pregnant. We're not told whether Mary tells Joseph um, uh, immediately what the angel had told her and explains to to him, but you can imagine that conversation. Um, It would have been difficult and awkward. And, and Joseph is now considering putting her away. It, once you have been betrothed, there actually has to be a divorce to, to annul that, uh, that betrothal. And so he's considering doing that, but he's going to do it quietly. He could bring charges of adultery um, against her. Uh, even though they're not married, it would be, it would be charges of adultery um, for her fornication, for her sexual immorality. And he doesn't want to bring those charges. He's, yeah, there's, I imagine he's confused, I imagine he's upset, and I imagine he's, he's, he knows, though, that just something's not right, and he doesn't want her to be um, condemned publicly. He just wants to put her away and be done with it. And this angel comes and instructs um, uh, Joseph as well in terms of what is going on. This angel appears and declares the miraculous event and promises a great salvation. Now, there had been many pointed signs of momentous redemptive events in Israel history that had surrounded the birth of a child from women who were barren. This, a similar kind of event had taken place many, many times, probably symbolic, uh, looking forward to, to something even greater. We have the stories of Isaac and Samson and Samuel, all conceived after God had intervened all conceived um, to women who were barren, unable to have children, and yet then God changed that. God did something, and then they were able to have children. They didn't conceive of the Holy Spirit. They conceived by their husbands. But nevertheless, God intervened specially. And when he brings forth, for instance, Samson, Samuel, judges, he's bringing forth deliverers. He's bringing forth um, saviors. He's bringing forth men who would rise up and save the nation. 
And so over and over again, we have this kind of picture throughout um, Scripture of that going on. And now in Mary's day, her relative, Elizabeth, as well, has, has, has well beyond years of being able to have a child. And sure enough, she, she finds out that she is now with child after, John, uh, after Zacchaeus is, is told that, that this is going to happen. And she's with child. And, and uh, we, we hear the story of Mary going to visit her in, in Luke as well. Elizabeth was too old to have children, and now she's having a child, and John the Presbyterian is born, or the Baptist, I'm sorry. Um, and, and so John comes forth, and he is the Elijah, the one that is to come and, uh, to, uh, to prepare the way. Mary is barren as well, but in a different way. Mary is unable to have children because she's a virgin. Now, in the midst of God honoring Mary with being the mother of our Savior, he does so with a woman who is betrothed, who is a virgin, and who would bear Joseph many other children after giving birth to Jesus. Um, and, and this helps to set aside some very wrong pictures of Mary. Um, Mary is a, a wonderful saint, a, a, a wonderful sister in, in the Lord, somebody we should honor, some, somebody we should give thanks to God for her righteous um, following after um, her Lord, believing the Lord when the Lord gives her this word, and, um, and humbling herself um, as as his, as his servant, um, as, as God gives this plan that is going to be a very difficult plan for her to, uh, to live through. But when this happens, um, this is, it, it is not, it's not that she needed to be a virgin because it, in some ways she would be, if, if, if Jesus um, was born of a woman who had not been a virgin, now all of a sudden that would have been an unclean thing to happen. It's, um, there, there are these devilish doctrines, they're in the scriptures, um, uh, doctrines that forbid to marry, for instance, in 1 Timothy 4.3, as though marriage was a step down in sanctification and somehow. And then there are also these false teachings of Mary not only being a virgin during the birth of Christ or for the birth of Christ, but a perpetual virgin. Um, the, the Roman Catholic Church teaches this, that this perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, because if she, were to, um, if she were to enter into relations with a husband, that in some way would make her less holy. But that, that, that's not what's being taught here. That's not the point. That's not the purpose of what's going on. And, and the scriptures are clear that Mary was the mother, through Joseph, of many other sons and daughters. In Mark chapter 6, for instance, um, when, um, when Jesus is teaching back in his hometown, um, there, there are those who know Jesus. They know the family. And they say, is this not the carpenter, this, is, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended by the whole thing. He had grown up among them. And, and then the scriptures make clear, he had all kinds of brothers and sisters with him. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. The same thing is brought out to us in Matthew chapter 12. Interestingly, in John chapter 7, um, his brothers are instructing, kind of chiding Jesus to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. He's, he's, he's lingering back in his hometown, and, and the brothers say to him, look, if, if you, they say, depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples, not them, but your disciples um, may also see the works that you're doing. And then it says that they said this, for even his brothers did not believe in him. An interesting point about that is it, it helps to understand possibly why his brothers are not with him or with their mother when Jesus is dying on the cross. 
And they may not have come to faith until after the resurrection. We do know, we're, we're told that Jesus, after the resurrection, saw many, um, and, and, uh, and we have evidence that his brothers are um, authors of, of books of the, of the New Testament. And, and we have, um, we, so we have an understanding that some, at least some of them, came to faith. But it's, it's also clear in the scriptures that there was a period of time where his brothers were not believing him, and that may be why Mary was on her own as he was hanging on the cross without any other family members. Well, this gives, this then gives Matthew um, chapter 1, 24 and 25 significance. Again, then Joseph being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took him his wife and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. He makes the point, the writer makes the point that, that he did not have any relations with her until Jesus was born. Mary's virginity was a normal, expected status for an unmarried young woman, but there's no reason at all to assume that she had to remain a virgin her entire life. So we set that aside in terms of the purpose of virginity. No, purpose of virginity goes back to a sign, along with all of these other um, symbolic births that take place by barren women, a sign that was given to Isaiah in chapter 7. Isaiah, who was a prophet during the reign of several kings, gives a prophecy to King Ahaz in Judah as a sign of reassurance to this king um, when the, the, the enemy, uh, uh, enemy nations are attacking now, Ahaz is not a good king, but Isaiah is told to go before him and to give him and, and to tell him that God is going to send Assyria and the, and the other uh, nations away that are coming against him. And he goes to, so Isaiah goes to Ahaz and he says, um, the Lord has a sign for you. And Ahaz says, I don't want a sign. <laughs> and Isaiah says, tough, I'm giving you a sign anyway. And he gives them a sign, and he says, he gives them this sign that a virgin, um, that this virgin will conceive, this is Isaiah chapter 7, uh, if you want to turn there, just to see it. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's the verse that then is quoted in chapter 1, verse 23 of Matthew. Okay, so now when that happens um, in the Hebrew, the word is Alma. And the word Alma can be translated virgin, but it also can just be simply, simply translated young woman. Now, that's going to be important in, 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 a, in a moment, I'll tell you. Um, so, uh, so a young woman does conceive. It's Isaiah's wife who conceives and bears a son. And that becomes this sign. And sure enough, there's another part to that sign. But sure enough, in this very short period of time, um, God turns, aside, turns away the enemy nations and Ahaz and Judah are all saved. So, prophecy fulfilled. Well, interestingly... Hundreds of years before the New Testament, so that takes place 500 and some years before Christ, a couple of hundred years before Christ, the Old Testament is translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, there, there is a possibility in Greek to use a specific word for a young lady or young woman, and a specific word that only means virgin. And that word is Parthenos. 
And 200 years before Christ, when this, when this um, translation is made, the, the word that is used is parthenos. And throughout, um, throughout faithful um, Jewish thinking, in the Talmud, in the, in the writings of, 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 of the day leading up to it, there is an expectation coming from these prophecies that there's going to be some spectacular, miraculous birth that is going to bring forth a Messiah. There are those who understood this, that they had pointed to this and longed for such a miraculous sign to take place. So, um, and, but what you'll hear, you will hear liberal scholars regularly point to the fact that the Hebrew says Alma, says, and it was just a young woman. And therefore, Jesus was not born of a virgin. He was just born of a young woman. Well, it doesn't make sense at all in the, in the Greek. In, in, in the Greek. And, and then also, um, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense in terms of the rest of the story. The rest of the story would be this lie then with regard to angels coming, speaking to Mary, um, and, and speaking to Joseph, and so on. So, um, we have this sign that is given that a virgin is going to conceive and give birth. Why? what's, What's going on with this? The means by which this child was conceived, we are told, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the one who had produced the world, Genesis 1, verse 2, now produced the Savior of the world from a woman. The Holy Spirit, who, who had produced the whole world, um, we see in, in Genesis 1, it's the Holy Spirit that is hovering over the face of the earth. It, you have really an aspects of all persons of the Trinity in creation. God the Father speaks. The Word is the, is the speaking of God the Father, and the Spirit is the breath that goes forth, that hovering over the earth and brings forth the creation. All of the members of the Trinity are there and involved in the creation of all things. Well, this same Spirit is going to now produce the Savior of the world from a woman. Thus, Jesus was truly Mary's son, because it was, it was, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So she was not just a surrogate mother. Okay? She, she's not just one who is carrying somebody else's baby. It's her baby. He is said to be made of a woman, Galatians 4.4, 4, and the blessed fruit of her womb, Luke 1, 42. And of course, this means that Jesus was fully and completely human. As we recited in the, um, in the creed this morning, the definition of Chalcedon, um, Jesus was fully man. He's also fully God. And this also points to the fulfillment of the first gospel promise where the woman's seed will bruise the serpent's head. In, in, in Genesis 3.15, when this, is, when this is given in the midst of the curse that comes because of the fall that Adam and Eve um, went through, um, there's this promise that is, the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. Well, normally, seed refers to the man, something that comes from the man, but this is the seed of the woman instead. And, and that kind of goes along with, with another odd thing that when genealogies are given throughout the Old Testament, the genealogy is already talking about a man who begets another man, who begets another man, who begets another man. Um, sometimes there's a woman that's inserted, but genealogies are usually talking about this covenantal procession from, man, from a man down to his, um, to his descendants. So... Jesus is fully a man, but he's also the Son of God. He was, he was and is fully and completely deity. He's God the Son. He is born of the Spirit. He's the, and so what happens is he's the second Adam, the Lord from heaven. The first Adam is created by God. 
The second Adam is created by God. The first one is created by God using dust of the earth. The second Adam is created by God using the womb of the virgin. 1 Corinthians 15 says, The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is Lord from heaven. John 3.13 says, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is, the Son of Man who is heaven is, is in heaven. Jesus is the only one who has come from heaven. So Jesus is fully man. Jesus is fully God. Okay, we have that from the scriptures. We, we, aren't to, we, we aren't to posit how so much this is possible. It's, it's a little bit beyond our ability to comprehend how Jesus is fully God and fully man. And there's, there's no separation. There's no mingling together. There's, we, we truly have two natures in one person. And we, we certainly as, we assert those things because Scripture tells us, but it's, we're not required to understand how these things, any more than we were tr- tr- required to understand how God created everything from nothing just by the word of his power. We, we, we simply assert what God tells us in, his, in the scriptures. Okay, so now, but we still have to deal with this virgin birth, one who's going to come forth fully man and fully God. Why is the virgin birth important? Well, the virgin birth then accomplishes something else entirely, something necessary for our salvation. Obviously, Jesus has no earthly father, so there's no connection from a father begetting him. Um, now, why would this be important? Well, we know that Christ was sinless, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he who made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that he might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2.22, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Or Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was sinless. He never sinned. But it's not just that he never sinned. There's something else to note here. It's, it's not just that he never sinned and lived a perfect, righteous life. Jesus was set apart as holy by, the, by means of the way in which he was conceived. Luke 1.35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the angel says to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that holy one is to be born, who, who will be called the Son of God. A holy one is born. You see, all human beings have a covenantal participation in the sin of our father Adam. It is not just the case that we all sin. It is the case that by nature, we are fallen creatures bearing that nature of Adam covenantally into us. So Adam sinned, and when he sinned, we are to understand that all of mankind fell into death, and fell into the condemnation of God because of our sinfulness. Not just our sins, but our sinfulness. Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life. He doesn't sin at all. But more importantly, Jesus is the Holy One. Jesus does not carry the sinfulness of the first Adam. Because he doesn't come from the line of the first Adam. He comes creating a second line. The, the only other line. There really, only, there really only are two races in the world. There's, there's the race of those who are under the first Adam. And there's the race of those who are covenantally under the second Adam. And that's all. That's all there is. And so 
what happens is all, all human beings have this covenantal participation in the sin of our father Adam. But the fact that Jesus did not have a human father means that he did not participate in the covenantal fall. Apparently, our covenantal participation in Adam's rebellion is passed down through the human father, not via DNA or molecules, but through covenant responsibility. Covenant responsibility. Now, we, we, we just don't think about this enough. We don't think about our covenant connection to Adam. We truly think of ourselves far too individualistically. And, and the point isn't to say, well, I sin, because at, I, I sin by nature because my father is Adam, so I'm not to blame. No, we're fully to blame for our own sins. But why are you so easily given over to sin? Why is the human race so easily given over to human sin? It is because of the very nature of who we are since the fall. Since the fall, you cannot, ever since the fall, you cannot open up a newspaper anywhere in the world anytime and not find a bunch of bad news. A bunch of bad people doing a bunch of bad things and that's only the, that's only the tip of the iceberg. You have all the stuff that doesn't make the news. You have all the stuff that everybody's justifying that they're doing. You have everybody's thoughts and intentions and selfish, selfishnesses and, and petty problems with one another. It's all because of the fall. Now, we're all responsible individually. But you have to understand that we have this nature because of who we are, because of our, because of our dad, because of Adam. And, and part of the reason this is so important to understand is, is you, if you don't get that, it makes no sense that this carpenter's son could have anything to do with your salvation. What does a man dying 2,000 years ago, halfway around the world, not related to you in any way by blood, what, is, what in the world does he have, what, what can he do? Well, he can only do that for you if you are covenantally attached to him. If he's taking responsibility as a father, if he's taking responsibility covenantally as a father for your sin. You see that? You see, so Adam causes all of us to fall into sin, and all who are in Christ find that grace covers all of the sin, renews us and makes us new, but only covenantally connected to him. Jesus is born of a virgin, because he starts a new line, the, the line of the new Adam. And it's not tainted at all by the old Adam. And the reason he can be the Holy One, and, and the reason he can be the Holy One, born of an actual human being and be a man, is because he does not have a human father who would pass on the covenantal responsibility and fall of the first Adam. He starts the new line. He starts the new line. Now think about this. To acknowledge this has incredible applications for us in so many ways. It, it's to, it, it, here's what it does, first of all. It, it acknowledges the responsibility of every father over his child from the moment of conception. It, it places the covenantal responsibility of a father over that child from the moment of conception. This is a tremendously high view and a scriptural view of the sexual activity between a man and a woman. A sexual act between a man and a woman always produces the probability, 
the real possibility of covenantal responsibility by the man. And we live in a world where, where men are told they have no responsibility. No responsibility. And, and there is another picture of our wild rebellion against our Lord and God. Uh, completely tearing down the whole idea of a family structure with a covenantal responsible head that takes responsibility uh, for everything going on in the life of his child from the moment of conception. If, if, if we were to hold this view, consider, consider what we would think of sexual infidelity and how, how that would be tied to such covenantal abdication. And consider what it says in Ephesians 6.4, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. We, we oftentimes do mention this when we're talking about the, the importance of education for children, and, it's, and that's a, it's a good verse to go to. We always, have to, we always kind of stumble over it because we have all these homeschool moms, and we, and we have all these women that are teaching in the schools, and, and, and so we always say, well, fathers and mothers. Fathers are the one responsible one, but of course mothers are responsible, families are responsible, and, and, and all that's true also. But I think one of the things that's coming out in, this, in the structure of the family, as Paul writes about wives' responsibilities before husbands, husbands' responsibility before wives, children before fathers, and then fathers with regard to their children is, fathers, you have to take covenantal responsibility for your child. You are responsible for the moment of his conception for his life, his or her life, and that they be brought up, not just in that life, but they be brought up in the training and admonition of the Lord into the second birth. Into You, you have a responsibility like no one else in this world for your child to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to grow up in the knowledge of the Lord, to receive the admonition and the paideia, the world view, the way of thinking as Christians. Dads have that particular responsibility, and, and what's crazy is you have that responsibility from the moment of conception, and it never goes away. And I think for all of us, having, having a, a weightier sense of that, fathers having a weightier sense of that is so important. And it's so important in our culture, in our Christian culture, to understand why it's so important to remain pure sexually until the time that you're married. You, 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 this is all tied, it's almost like, to, to be sexually impure is to deny the virgin birth. And we have a nation that, that, is, that the sexual impurity, infidelity, is all across, all across, even throughout Christians, and here we have at the same time this, re, this reduction in, in the belief in the, in the importance of the virgin birth. I cannot prove causation. Okay? I cannot prove causation. But the two things do go together. The two things do go together. And so we want to proclaim, we want to proclaim the virgin birth, not to just establish big miracle out there. Look at this, wow. We want to establish the virgin birth because we believe how important it is that be, we be removed from the first Adam who is our covenant head by nature, and instead be brought into a whole other covenant relationship with the new Adam, because we understand the strength and power of covenants. The way that God has made the world, and, and the relationships between him and men with covenants. And understanding that becomes part of the glorious celebration then of Christmas. A brand new covenant head is being brought forth. And through that covenant head, and only through that covenant head, men and women are going to be saved. 
Now, I want to just note one other thing about Mary and, and, this, and, and this virginity. Remember, I, I mentioned to you, it was not necessary for Mary to be a virgin because Mary had to be pure. Um, if she had to be pure, then what also begins to talk, what is, begins to be taught is the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. The, the, this is another Roman Catholic doctrine. And that doctrine is that Mary had to be pure if she was going to bring forth a holy one. But Mary is, is a descendant of Adam. So, oh, she must, there must have been an immaculate, miraculous conception of Mary in order for her to be pure to now be the mother of, of Jesus. It raises all kinds of logical questions that, that don't make sense. But, but be it as it, as it may, the, the purpose behind that doctrine, again, is to try to push away the, this, this fallenness of humanity from Mary. But Mary's not pure. Mary's a sinner. In her song, she cries, calls out about her Savior that is coming forth. Mary needs a Savior just like the rest of us. Mary's a vessel, a servant of the Lord, faithful woman, a woman we can give thanks for, but she was not pure. She's a sinner just like the rest of us. And you don't have to believe in an immaculate conception, especially if we understand the, the headship of the Father. And the fact that uh, the covenant responsibility, God is Jesus' Father in that sense. The Holy Spirit is the one that brings forth the birth. Imagine for just a moment, if it was that, that um, somehow a miracle had to be performed so that Mary was born without original sin, well, then that would mean that somehow God could just zap people and keep them from being um, guilty of sin, guilty of being sin by nature. If, if that were the case, then what would the need for the cross be anymore? But we are told that salvation is only through Jesus Christ in Acts 4.12. And so we have this second Adam. That's who's born, a second Adam. Jesus is born holy, qualifying him to be our Savior. A man cannot die for your sins. No other man can die for your sins. And you can't pay for your sins. Someone, and, and another man can't pay for his, your sins because he's got his own sins to pay for. Unless a holy one would come. And that holy one, free of all sin, could bear that sin covenantally, imputed upon him, so that his righteousness could be imputed upon you. A new Adam is brought forth in the middle of the story of humanity to solve the unsolvable problem. How can sinners be accepted by and reconciled to God? We are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 1 Peter 1.19. And so understand, Adam's sin was imputed to us as our covenant head. Our sins and our sinfulness has been imputed, though, to Christ as our substitute. Not only your sins, but your very wretched nature was placed upon that cross. And Christ bore your sin. He bore your sinfulness on the cross as your substitute. And then Christ's perfect righteousness and purity is imputed to you in the new covenant. This is, what, this is part of what it means to have been adopted, to, to have been brought into a new family. You, you, you're no longer part of that old family. And not only has your, has your name been changed, but your very nature has been changed. You have a new nature now. The, the celebration of Christmas is the celebration of the path to that new nature that you have. We can be a kind of people that the world cannot be 
because of this birth. Of course it should be celebrated. Of course it should be remembered. Of course we should ponder it and think on it often and regularly. The perfection of his life and the absence of our corruptions, that's your Christmas gift. That's your Christmas gift. It's all given to you. It's all grace. It's all free. Merry Christmas. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Our Father and our God, thank you for Jesus who has saved us from our sins. Your unsearchable purposes and immense love for us are both displayed in the gift of Christmas and the celebration of Christmas. Let our celebration be deep and immense as well. Let us not let it go by tritely. Instead, let us proclaim the glorious salvation that is ours through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.